Verse 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. You may be seated. God bless you, Lord. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. And you might know that the verses I just read are from Colossians 2, and you might guess that with Glenn having read from Colossians 1, and I beginning with verse in Colossians 2, uh, that the sermon today might be from that portion of Scripture. And if you think that, Yes, you're correct. Um, I'd like to zero in especially on the portion that Glenn read, verses 13 through 19. Uh, not thinking so much about the book of Colossians as a book, not even thinking about Colossians 1 as a chapter, as much as kind of confining ourselves to verses 19, 13 through 19, that, one, that paragraph which consists, I think, of two part sentences and two whole sentences. Warren Wiersbe commented on this paragraph and said that, I quote, probably no paragraph in the New Testament contains more concentrated doctrine about Jesus Christ than this one, which I thought was pretty interesting. That being the case, we'll have a lot to consider and to look at here today in that paragraph of Colossians 1, 13 through 19. Concentrated doctrine, Mr. Wearsby said. Concentrated doctrine. And as I studied, as I read and studied, I found that so. Um, there is a lot more here there is a lot more truth in this paragraph than I will be able to articulate this morning. I wish I would understand it better. I thank God for what I do understand and appreciate about this portion. Seven verses in these two whole sentences and two part sentences. Seven verses and seven points in the outline that I have prepared. Colossians 1, 13 through 19. Before that, though, shouldn't we think a little bit uh, and talk just a little bit about the church at Colossae? There's especially two little unique tidbits about the city of Colossae in that time and the church at Colossae uh, that we just should mention. And one of those is that the book of Colossians is the only one of Paul's epistles 
where he hadn't visited that church and he hadn't, we say, founded that church. Paul, as far as we know, has never been to Colossae and the text in, bears that out. Look at chapter 1, verse 4, where he says, since we heard of your faith. He hadn't known before. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9, especially verse 9. For this cause all, we also, since the day we heard it. And look at chapter uh, 2, verse 1. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So Paul hadn't met these people. Paul didn't know these people. Paul hadn't ever uh, visited their city or visited their, any of their uh, worship services on the Lord's Day morning, anything like that. The question could be asked, well, how then was the church started? How could that happen? That, and I think one answer certainly could be that Epaphras, spoken about in verse 7 of chapter 1 and other places I think here in the book, was probably, I'm just guessing that he was in Ephesus at the time that Paul spent two years there. Acts 19 verse 10 would, or, or thereabouts would speak about how Paul, uh, in an unfettered way, ministered at Ephesus for two years. Uh, pretty incredible for him. Often he was hounded out of the city uh, after a number of weeks or after a short time. But for two years, he was able to minister and preach and teach and teach, yes, at a school, the school of Tyrannus, uh, the Bible says there in Acts 19. And I just like to think that Epaphras might have been a young man who was, uh, had come to that school. Maybe we'd call it high school or college today. And had been converted then later in life went back home, probably north 100 miles or so from, from Ephesus, and was, went home and evangelized so that soon there was a little church, a little group of God's children in the hinterland of Colossae. The Bible does say in Acts 19.10 that all they that were in Asia all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the gospel. Wonderful. All right, secondly, so the first little interesting tidbit that we should talk about is that Paul had never visited these people, didn't know them personally. Secondly, the book of Colossians, Paul wrote the book of Colossians to correct, to face and to correct a certain situation that was happening in their church and in their midst. And that is typical of Paul's epistles, right? Many, maybe most, maybe all of Paul's letters to the churches were written in response to issues that the enemies of Christ, the enemies of the church had stirred up. And... I remind you that the enemies are three, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, just for instance, uh, you remember about 1 Corinthians, especially in 2 Corinthians, where that church had sprung up in the most 
defiled city in the, on the face of the earth or in the Roman Empire of that day. Uh, all kinds of sexual immorality and unclean, terrible. And some of that had infiltrated the church. So Paul wrote in response to that. And I would say that that's just an example of the enemy of the world making inroads in the church at Corinth. In Philippi, for, uh, by contrast, that was a much uh, different situation. And Paul wrote that letter. Remember why? Um, I think largely to correct and to encourage uh, because there was conflict in the church. And Paul doesn't bring it up till chapter 4, almost the end, diplomatically, almost the end of the book before he finally brings it out to the open. And, and you know, of course, you ladies, that it was two ladies that were the issue. Eutychus, or Euodius, and Syntyche. That's an example of the enemy of the flesh, I think. Now, here in Colossae, different yet. Um, there had been false teachers in Colossae. Not false teachers as in Judaizers, which hounded Paul's ministry in all kinds, many times and places, but this was uh, something different. This was, uh, could we say, a little bit on the new side back then. It certainly isn't new today, although that, that heresy uh, kind of rears its ugly head even yet. Um, we call it Gnosticism. And that false teacher, the, that false teaching, and the false teachers that were promoting that and parroting that was really a combination of Greek philosophy and Jewish law. Can you imagine convert, uh, merging those two? But then, uh, along with that also, um, uh, including some gospel, Bible, Jesus, truth. Uh, Gnosticism. In so doing, these teachers, who were not the enemy, remember? It wasn't the defiled people at Corinth that are the enemy. It wasn't Euodius and Syndicate that were the enemies. It wasn't these false teachers that were the enemies, but the enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. These teachers were not, it's been said, oh, Warren Wiersbe again, weren't denying the importance of Jesus' teaching, but dethroning him just a bit, or dethroning him some. Not denying, but dethroning. They were willing to give prominence to Jesus' teaching, but they weren't willing to give him, oh, the word is in Colossians 1.18, preeminence. Not, they were willing to give Jesus prominence, part, but not preeminence. And Paul responds to this uh, by writing the book of Colossians. Paul responds in typical fashion to this heresy in very forceful fashion. 
and very truthful fashion. And we today, we here today, are the beneficiaries of Paul's writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the book of Colossians. And why? as well as have been believers throughout all the ages. Thank God for, uh, that God was able to turn this enemy into bene benefits for us here today. And there's two words in the book of Colossians that stand out to me. That I kind of think that are the themes of the book. Um, two words that really stand out to me. One of them is, I have already mentioned, Verse 18, preeminence, preeminence. And the second one is in, I think, is verse 2, is in verse 2, verse 10, and the word is complete. Preeminence and complete. In fact, that's what I have entitled the message today. Preeminent and complete. Preeminence and complete. When, when we, when you, when I, with our hearts and our head and our hands, gladly um, acknowledge and live by the preeminence of Jesus Christ, then we are very, then we are complete in Him. Preeminence and completeness. When we, you and I, and all of us, when we, with our heart and our hand our heart and our heads and our hands live as if Jesus is preeminent and show pre his preeminence in our life and experience, then we're not only complete in him, but gloriously complete in him, thank God. Gloriously complete with more to come. Because one of these days, if we don't all get buried first, we will um, be called home at the rapture and then the real glory will only begin. The real completeness will only begin. All right, so remember I said seven parts in the, seven parts in the outline. Maybe we should get started with that. From Jesus' preeminent position, he brings completeness, preeminence and completeness. From his position of preeminence, he brings completeness to us through verse 13, his, I say, his rescue. Do you see the, the word rescue in verse 13? Well, it's not quite there, is it? Who hath delivered us? Oh, yes, delivered. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. The, the word delivered, I thought it was interesting that the NIV, the New International Version, renders that word rescued. So we could say, who has rescued us from the power of darkness. Certainly, Jesus, from his preeminent position, is the rescuer of our souls. He, he has rescued us. He has delivered us. Thank God for that deliverance. The word salvation, we talk about our wonderful salvation, and rightly so. That salvation means being saved, right? The, uh, the root word is saved. And a, 
uh, another term that we could rightly use is that of rescue. Jesus, from his preeminent position, brings completeness to us, our lives, through the rescue on the cross. Salvation from sin. Rescue. I very, I often think when, when I read or I'm thinking about God's, Jesus' wonderful salvation, his wonderful rescue, I think, maybe you know what I'm going to say, I think of, of July 24 through 28, 2002. Do you know what happened in those 77 hours uh, in history, 21 years ago? Um, there was, in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, a number of miners underground, and something went wrong at the Q Creek Mine. Something went wrong, and the area where they were was uh, flooded with water. I think I read 75 million gallons um, got loose and went where it wasn't supposed to be. And these miners were trapped. A number, at just a different little different place in the mine, uh, were able to get to safety, but these nine were trapped underground, in the dark, in the cold. And there was so precious little that they could do to help themselves. There was so precious little they could do to help, to help themselves. And as, as I think, as we think about this, you're thinking about, we're thinking about ourselves too, aren't we? And how that our situation spiritually was like that, except much worse. Uh, there was no hope. Uh, we couldn't save ourselves. There wasn't a thing we could do. We just needed rescue from, in the worst way, but we couldn't do it ourselves. Well, in this case... Back there in 2002, there was an awful lot of teamwork going on up at ground level. The nine miners didn't know about it, but there was an awful lot happening. There was round-the-clock efforts, and there was innovative thinking and procedures put into place, and there was all kinds of expenses incurred, and many, many people helping in different and various and many capacities, all trying to save, see if they couldn't save these miners. After 77, year, after 77 hours, all nine of them were rescued. In the real rescue, though, in the real rescue, which this situation is only a small and dim picture of, in the real rescue, which hopefully all of us, every one of us here has experienced, um, Jesus paid it all. It wasn't a team effort, except you could say it was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But Jesus paid it all. Jesus, from his preeminent position brings completeness to his children through his rescue. Thank God for Jesus, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, the Bible says. And Paul emphasizes these things, these truth, this truth about Jesus, and the implication is, we understand, don't we, that the implication is that nobody else, nothing else, can do the trick, but Jesus can. He is preeminent. The 
false teachers with their funny ideas. Jesus is preeminent. And from his preeminent position brings completeness to our lives through his rescue. Verse 13. Also, moving along here, also still in verse 13, something else uh, that Paul emphasizes. Do you see it? Um, kind of another verb. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And I just call that word relocated us. Verse 13, Jesus has rescued us. Verse 13, in his rescue, Jesus has, also, has relocated us. Do you see that? He has translated us, or the modern versions say transferred us from the, into the kingdom of his, from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And what a transfer, what a relocation that is. Thank God. From darkness to light, from no hope at all to victory in Jesus. It's a relocation. Maybe you remember how that was when you were born again and became a part of God's family, became a child of Jesus, and what a transfer, what a, trans what a relocation it was. Thank God for that. Remember the miners? I'm thinking about them once again. After 77 hours down in the dark, down, down in the dark, where it was chilly and wet, and they were alternating between hope and despair, and I'm just guessing that you could almost smell the stench of death down there. After that, there was... How were they rescued? Well, there was a 30-inch wide shaft dug down, a lot of it through solid rock, I believe. Um, was it 240 feet? I forget. And then they put a steel mesh capsule down through there and were able to bring up one miner at a time, one at a time. It took a couple hours. And think of that relocation that those miners experienced at that time from the worst situation to the to the coming to being relocated to light and warmth and welcome of many people and a, a new lease on life and a future none of which was the case down there it was a relocation and god has done that to us except in more wonderful ways relocated us from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Remember 1 Peter 2.9 says that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter also speaks about that relocation. And I think it's interesting that and neat that the Bible there says that God, he hath called us out of the darkness into the light. He has called us, but Colossians 1 goes further and says, not only did God call us to that, but he provided every bit of that wonderful transfer, that wonderful relocation. Makes me think of, about that little poem that says, the law commands but gives 
neither feet nor hands. A better thing the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. That's what Jesus provides in his great relocation. The Bible calls it translated in the King James. The question is, have you been relocated? Have I? Thank God that from his position of prominence, he brings completeness to our life and experience by relocating us from the very worst position to the very best. All right. His, we're talking about Jesus' rescue of us and his relocating of us. Um, do you see a, the R word in verse 14? In whom we have, there it is, redemption. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Um, redemption. Redeeming. Jesus redeemed us. Uh, from his preeminent position, Jesus brings completeness to our lives and experience through his redemptive power. Oh. What is redemption? Well, biblically, redemption speaks of being brought back or being bought back. Kind of that twofold idea of being brought back from the brink, you know, or being bought back. And John Phillips says that there are two books of the Bible, two books of the Old Testament that especially um, show that. Exodus shows the wonder of God's people being brought back from slavery. There's that transfer again. From this to this. And the book of Ruth is a picture of being brought, uh, no, of being bought back. Ruth, the Moabitess, who had nothing going for her whatsoever, was bought back. He was redeemed by her wonderful bridegroom. Rescue by purchase, rescue by power. Those two, that twofold idea. And we understand, do we not? You do and I do, that there's no hope for you or for me. There is just no hope unless God does the redeeming because we cannot do it ourselves. We don't have the might, we don't have the resources, we don't have money enough, we don't have power enough. But Jesus, the preeminent one, does. He redeems us from corruption. Redemption. He has redeemed us through his blood and given us forgiveness of sins. Moving on to verse... Oh, let, let, I often think, when I think about redemption and being bought back, I often think about my brother Nate, my little brother Nate, and my dad. Um, when Nathan was about 18 or so, my dad bought him a car. So he had Carl Harlan and I as well, about that age. But the thing about, for the last born of the four sons, my dad bought Nate, a 1984 brand spanking new Oldsmobile Cutlass. And it was quite a car, we thought, and Nate was happy about that. But as cars do, it got older, and after a while, 
Nate had, after a number of years, Nate had um, no more use for it or he needed to upgrade, so he sold the car back to my dad. <laughs> and my dad used it as a work car for a number of years, in and out of the orchard. So my dad paid for the car twice. We called it in those days the twice bought. That was the name for that car. And that's just a very crude illustration and example of what Jesus did. What my dad did for Nate, bought him, bought the car and gave it to Nate twice. In a much more glorious way, Jesus redeemed us. He brought us back. He bought us back. Thank God for Jesus. Going on to verse 15, we notice, uh, notice that word, who is the image or we could say the reflection, or the mirror. And none of those words really quite do justice. But yeah, let's use the word re reflection. Image is a reflection, or an exact likeness of the unseen God. The visible representation of the invisible. That's what the Amplified Bible says. Let me just read that for you again. The image, verse 15 of Colossians 1. The ex exact likeness of the unseen God, the visible representation of the invisible. That makes me think about where the Bible says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The re Jesus, from his position of preeminence, far above everybody and everything else, and even the Gnostic teaching from his position of preeminence, reflects God's image. And he, we receive completeness by the image that Jesus does, uh, gives of exactly God's character and God's personality and God himself. John 14, 9, remember Jesus said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Yes, God, Jesus is the exact reflection or representation or image, as the word is used here in Colossians, of God the Father. The false teachers that were busy in Col Colossae at that time and making converts and making inroads in the church, oh, they couldn't produce such a person, certainly not, nowhere, no time, any time. Jesus is the exact reflection of God. I wish there'd be a better word. The image, the reflection, the mirror. God, uh, yes, Jesus, in, from his preeminent position, gives us completeness in him through his reflecting of God the Father. He's the image of the invisible God. From there, let's, yes, let's move on to verse, another word, or another concept, still in verse 4. 15, where it says that Jesus is the firstborn of every creature. A little hard to understand, isn't it? Jesus is the firstborn of every creature. 
I think that speaks of rank. In fact, we Gentiles, uh, simplistic as we are, or at least some of us are that way, uh, tend to think that firstborn, as the word is used there in Colossians 1.15, means born first. If that's the case, that would make Jesus a created being, wouldn't it? And that would not jive with verse 16, where the Bible categorically declares that he is the creator of everything. Jesus is the creator. So that, that firstborn means born first can't be right in light of the next verse. In verse 16. And besides that, how could a created being create himself? Many scholars, well, lots, they uniformly say in different ways that they say it, is that firstborn, as the word is used there, has every, nothing to do with being born, but it has everything to do with priority and privilege. Jesus is firstborn, is God's firstborn, not in that he was born, but he, he is priority and he is privilege. Jesus existed before creation. I hope we get that. That's absolutely, the Bible makes that absolutely clear at various places. Jesus existed before the creation, and he's above all creation, and he's above everything and everyone, and he has the position, he, given by God himself, is in the absolute position of priority and privilege. Firstborn speaks of rank, in other words. Rank. He, first in rank, absolute first. He is above, far, far, far above everything and everyone else. Thank God that he has made Jesus in that preeminent position first in rank. And we just talked about far above. There's two verses in the book of Ephesians that we probably should just look at real quick like. Um, both of them have that term far above. wonder if I can find that. One twenty one, Ephesians one twenty one, where it says, Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in the world, but also in that which is to come. That speaks again of the rank of Jesus Christ being far above everyone else. The other verse is in Ephesians is chapter 4, verse 10. You might want to look at that, and we'll keep moving back in Colossians and think about not only his rank, but also Jesus' responsibility in verses 16 and 17. Do you see two responsibilities there that Jesus had? One of them he still has. One of them is already accomplished. The responsibilities that God gave Jesus 
twofold, two of them. One is that Jesus was responsible for the creation. You see that in verse 16, clear and plain, right? He is responsible for all creation, and the Bible there says both visible and invisible. He is the creator. He, is, he was responsible for the creation. And as I think of that, the creation of the world, the world as we see it. Back in 2003, uh, Wanda and I packed up our seven children into a motorhome and went west for four weeks. And I, as I think of the creation, I think of our experience at the Grand Canyon and Bryce Canyon. Maybe you've seen both of those too. We viewed the Grand Canyon and it was just that, just incredibly grand and it, Oh, yeah, breathtaking. I hope you get to see it sometime, if you haven't a few times already. And from there, then we went north and went to Bryce Canyon. And that wasn't as grand or as big or as impressive that way, but it was just so beautiful. The Grand Canyon uh, was just that, grand, but the Bryce Canyon was beautiful. And I think of those two as I think of Jesus creating all of that. The creation of the world, Colossians 1, verse 16. But also, invisible things were created by the preeminent one. What kind of invisible things? Well, we could list a number, and I'm not much of a scientist. You probably know more about that. And, but um, gravity is invisible, right? But it's part of the creation. There's atoms and molecules that are so small that you can't see them with the naked eye. Invisible things. And then there's also vast galaxies of stars way out there that we can't begin to see without powerful, powerful microscopes, and scientists say that we haven't discovered all of the creation even yet. Visible and invisible. Jesus is the sustainer of, yes, all of that, but that's one thing that he was responsible for, Jesus, the creation. That's done, but do you see in verse 17, another responsibility that he holds, and that is by him all things consist. We're thinking of his responsibility. By him all things consist. By him all things hold together. If it wouldn't be for Jesus' sustaining power, without him holding things together, um, things would be uh, in one grand mess worlds and worlds worse than chaos. We can, can hardly imagine what that would be if it wasn't that Jesus, the Bible says, holds things together. John MacArthur, on that subject, talks about, uh, says this. Scientists now speak of the anthropic principle, which states that the universe appears to be carefully designed for the well-being of mankind. A change in the rate of Earth's rotation around the sun or on its axis would be catastrophic. The Earth would become either too cold, too hot, or too cold to support life. 
If the moon were much nearer to the earth, huge tides would inundate the continents. A change in the composition of the gases that make up our atmosphere would also be fatal to life. A slight change in the mass of the proton would result in the dissolution of hydrogen atoms. That would result in the destruction of the universe because hydrogen is its dominant element. By him, all things hold together. Thank God for his responsibility, for Jesus' responsibility of even in the, in the created physical world around us, it's because of him that we live and move and have our being. Without that, without his holding things together, and the Bible word is consist in the, in the King James, without that, we would be goners long already. One more that we should look at in verse 18, after all these other six. From his preeminent position, Jesus brings completeness to our life by his rulership. By his rulership. And he is the head of the body of the church. Do you see that in verse 18? Jesus it brings completeness to our lives and experience through his rulership. He is the head of the body of the church. Not only that, but he is ruler over everything. That's certainly implied in verse 19. That verse that I, one of the many verses that I wish I would understand just the, the depth of a little better. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Jesus is the ruler. He's ruler of the church. He's ruler over everything. And one of the Wonderful features of Jesus' rulership is, is that, well, do you see it? He's the firstborn from the dead. And I'm wondering if you are like me, or I'm wondering if you wonder about that just a little bit. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, we know that there was other people that were resurrected from the dead, Remember, Elijah um, raised a person from the dead. And Elisha, with a double portion of Elijah's spirit, raised two people from the dead. And Jesus, how many people did he raise from the dead? We know of one from our Sunday school lesson today, right? But there was three. So what does it mean, firstborn from the dead? Well, it's been explained, and this could well be part of it. This could well be uh, what the Holy Spirit has in mind, is that Jesus was the first one of the seven to never die again. So that implies his permanence. And the Amplified Bible, in verse 19, tacks on one word at the end. And that word is permanently. And reading it in the King James, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and we add the word permanently. One of the wonderful features of Jesus' rulership is that it's permanent. It's forever and ever. And it just seems like all of this should elicit a response from us, doesn't it? 
And as I thought about that, um, and his kingship, his rulership, he is head of the church, he is head of everything and everyone, and his kingdom, which is in effect and force even now in a certain sense, and maybe we could even say a limited sense, but his kingdom is coming in the fullest and most wonderful sense yet in the future. As I thought about all that and the wonder of Jesus' rulership, from his preeminent position, Jesus brings fulfillment to our lives by the fact that he is our king, he is our ruler. That should elicit, elicit a response, I think. And I thought of two songs. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow, lead me to Calvary. That's a proper response for us to be making here once again. A second song I thought of is a much more modern one. Oh, the king is coming, the king is coming. I just heard the trumpets sounding, and now his face I see. Oh, the king is coming, the king is coming. Praise God, he's coming for me. And with that, I remind you of the title, Preeminent and Complete. And I remind you that I think that those two words kind of encompass what We've been talking about here and the book of Colossians in general. And with that, as you close your Bibles, I hope you're not closing your minds or your hearts. Um, preeminent and complete. Thank God he is in the preeminent position. God has placed Jesus in preeminence everywhere. All these seven plus more. Jesus and in so doing, in that preeminent place, Jesus brings completeness through into our lives and our experience and will until he calls us home. Will you kneel with me in prayer?